You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's episode comes to us in conjunction with our partnership with Nexus. Siraj and Ritu Gupta, brother and sister duo who runs the Easton's Group of Hotels, Canada's largest private hotel development firm. Together, the two run a family foundation and an early stage venture fund called Rogue Insights. In this episode, you'll hear how Ritu and Siraj's parents influenced them and how their Indian roots fueled their passion in entrepreneurship. Ritu and Siraj also talk about family dynamics, diversity, and multi-generational business planning. It's an all-around fun conversation. You'll like it. Ritu with her magical and angry notebooks. Yes, she labels her notebooks magical, angry, and so on. And Siraj's story as a clever 10-year-old working for his dad. I really admire how these two are using their family business to go deeper into impact, not just with the companies they invest in, but also within their businesses, making people a top priority. So with that, try and keep up with Ritu and Siraj Gupta. Welcome, Ritu and Siraj. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. We're excited. For sure. Well, I can't help but start with the reality that you two are brother and sister and offline that you um, mentioned that you were determined to work together at a very young age. And I know that lots of our members come through the ranks of a family business. So I'm probably going to spend a a little bit of time on this whole family dynamic, but um, take us to sort of the origin of your family, first of all, Um, how, how you got to Canada how you started the hotel group, and then what role did your family and what kind of conversations were taking place at the dinner table or on the road or wherever the or wherever dinner was being served, uh, okay. essentially, and how you guys end up getting involved with um, you know the family business? Sure. So would you like me to start? Please go ahead. Perfect. Okay. So we're from India. That is our our background. We're from Punjab, which is North India. Um, anybody that's Indian knows that. Punjab is where you want to be from. We're basically the best kind of Indian. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm Punjabi. So we can start off on a fantastic note. Um, My parents came from India to Canada in the 70s. Um, And my dad, when he left India, he always had dreams of opening hotels. And that was just, it was, you know, when we were small, he would always tell us about dreams of, you know, Rolls Royces parked in front of hotels. And he just, he just really, that was his dream. So he came here and he started with a truck stop that just east of here. Uh, it's in Port Hope. It's on the way, you know, it's on the way to Ottawa, on the way to Montreal. Um, and it's when he bought it, within months, it became the highest volume. It was a truck stop. So it was an SO or Texaco at that time. And it became the highest volume selling in gas. Um, and it was because my dad made small adjustments, small adjustments staff, put up more signage. And it was just interesting to see immediately that he was able to see that turnaround in business. And from there, with my dad's vision, he decided to add a hotel on that spot. And from there, that is where the entire company grew. So we now have 20 hotels. Um, They're all franchised under Marriott, Hilton, and IFG. We have about five more under development. We have really cool brands that are coming on board um, that will be the first in Canada, first to Hilton, first to Marriott, which is really, really, really interesting. Um, And, you know, you had asked, you know, how do we get involved in the business? Uh, So when we were really small, 
um, we our office has been the same place for for many many years. And somehow every summer, and we were. I don't know, eight years old, like you could, I, I remember barely being able to talk and being shoved into the office during the summers. And my parents, you know, literally school would be done four o'clock, you're home, you're about to stretch thinking, you know, I got two months to myself. Nope. They would literally come in and say, you're going to the office first thing tomorrow, you know, wake up early. That's where you have to go. We would scream. We would cry. Huge drama. We would get yelled at because South Asian parents don't give a, like, they do not care. You are going to work. Um, and it's so funny, you know, because we all worked at a very young age and Seward actually had the best story. So we basically all, my sisters and I all worked for free. You know, we never, we never really had the guts to say to our parents, okay, well, I'm going to work, but how much are you going to pay me? It was just not a conversation that we had. Um, my brother being the prodigy child and being the brilliant one has a much better story, which he will, which he will share with you. Um, <laughs> so we all, so we all worked, but you know, I have to say that because I worked so young, when I entered the workforce and, you know, when I went into high school, when I went to university for undergrad, I realized that I had learned so much professionalism and so much work skills and professional skills that all of my peers did not know. And it was interesting to me to see them all entering the workforce and realizing that I had learned so much at a young age. And it was only at that point that I realized my parents pushing us to work at such a young age, it was for this reason. You know, we were like slave labor. Oh my God, what is this? But really there, there was a point and there was a purpose to it. Um, so yeah, so I have to, you have to tell the story now about your, your experiences being young in the business. Yeah, no, sure. You give a, a very robust overview on, on growing up, which is great. I think that for us, you know, entrepreneurship, particularly for Ritu and I, entrepreneurship has always been in our blood. It's been everything we've ever wanted to do. Whenever we were younger and we would discuss things we wanted to work on or stuff we were passionate about or things that excited us, it was always working on an opportunity, right? It was always something that we, we now know is entrepreneurship, even if we didn't necessarily realize it when we were kids. Um, so to read his earlier point about uh, about the working over the summers, uh, I think I was nine or 10 years old uh, and my father said, okay, like you're gonna work at the office for the summer. Um, and there was a Nintendo video game I really wanted. So I figured out what the price was after tax and I basically came back to my father with a contract. And I'm like, okay, sign this, this is my hourly rate and you have to pay this to me at the end of the two weeks. Um, so he looks at it, he laughed and he signs it. Um, and at the end of the two weeks, he's like, it was a very specific amount you had in there. <laughs> like, why did you have that? I'm like, this is the exact amount I now have for my Nintendo game that you're going to take me to Toys R Us to now buy. Um, so that was the story, <laughs> the story there. Um, but yeah, I know you mentioned earlier, like, what were the, the dinnertime conversations like and all the kind of thing. I think, again, one of those things we didn't necessarily realize until you kind of take a step back from it. But all, all we ever talked about was business, right? The family was always talking about business, whether it was the hotels, real estate, new opportunities. Um, and honestly, I think that translated to Ritsu and I. Like when we were younger, a lot of what we would discuss were just opportunities and things we wanted to work on one day. Um, I think it definitely has translated into why we, we work so well together now is we're effectively working on ideas that we had when we were like nine or 10 years old. And are you the only siblings or do you have other siblings and are they involved as well? Yeah, so there's actually four of us. Um, and this is a question that we get we we get asked quite a bit. So we there's an older sister and then it's me and then my younger sister. Um, the older sister works part-time, she works from home, and my younger sister is actually in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And are they involved as well? All right. Um, I was not clear on that. My older sister, yes, is involved in the business. My younger sister who's in Chicago is not involved in the business. Gotcha. And is that sort of like a voluntary thing or like, I mean, how do those conversations go? Um, you know, I mean, that's sometimes not an easy thing because some family members are doing a lot of work. I mean, just sort of how, how is the, you know, there's so many levels to that. How's the intergenerational transfer going to happen as a result of some people working in the business, some people not. 
Um, is if you know, I'm just wondering, is a family conversation happening around that? Just sort of curious about how all that plays out for you guys. Yes, for sure. No, these are all great questions. So going back to your, your first point of, is it voluntary? Um, this is interesting because when we were growing up, it actually wasn't, uh, what's, what's the word? It wasn't a set point that we were all going to be in the family business. Um, brown parents specifically, they'll tell your kids, you can be a doctor or a lawyer and that's it. And that, so when I was growing up, that's what was in my mind. I was taking all science courses. My older sister did the same thing because, you know, we thought parents said be a doctor or lawyer. That's, that's, those are the two best professions. Business wasn't even kind of on the docket, which didn't make any sense because then in the summers they would shove us into the office. So it's, it's interesting because it was voluntary and not involuntary, I would say at the same time. Um, but I think for me specifically, I was always fascinated by business and my dad, you know, he would take me to construction sites. And, and as Seward said, we were always talking about business so when he would drop me to school in the morning he was telling me about new deals and stuff and I, I would in my mind I kept thinking I would so much prefer to do this and to go to school um so I think for me specifically it wasn't I would definitely say that it was voluntary in the sense of I loved our business and I, I love hotels and I've always loved hotels since I was really small so for me I just felt really lucky that my family business is in the industry that I love so for me I would say definitely it's it's voluntary and I think with my parents coming from India, their background's very different, you know, right? So they didn't, they don't have the same education that we have. They don't have the same exposure to family business, to generational business that we have. Um, it's very different. So when Seward and I both went to school, I, you know, I went, I did my MBA in 2008. And when I came back, I laid out sort of a map for my parents of, okay, if you want this business to be generational, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so it's been, it's been a long time and it, it's also, you know, with, and I'm sure so many businesses uh, go through this with the first generation, it's really hard. It's really hard for them to figure out, okay, what do I want the business to look like in 50 years? It, it, it's easier for me, I would say, because I've been to school and I've had the training for it. Um, so we are definitely, you know, having those conversations now of what is it going to look like? What would my parents ideally want? What, what do they want the business to look like? Um, and I think I sort of took matters into my own hands because I, I really wanted to diversify and make sure that the company is generational, um, which is why I'm now focusing on the Gupta group. Um, so I know I'm missing a bunch of things. Can you add to that in terms of generational and, and all of that? Yeah, yeah no, definitely. You know, I, I think one thing that was interesting was, I mean, growing up, I think all four of us had sort of different paths, right? And funny enough, my path growing up was very different than Ritu's. Ritu was always very passionate about the hotel side, very passionate about the family business, and always had a lot of ideas of things she wanted to do in the company. Honestly, I was the opposite. I did not really care for the real estate side of the business. I had so many other industries, particularly finance, that I was much more excited about. Um, so it's funny because when I was younger, whenever my parents would say like, oh, you know, one day you should come to work recently. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. I want to do something else. Um, and it was very funny because, I mean, I guess typical, you know, parent-child interaction, as soon as they stopped asking me to come to the business is when we came to them and said, okay, we want to launch Rogue and we want to do this stuff underneath Easton's umbrella. Um, I, I think they were just so shocked that... Can I interject? Because mm -hmm. so Suraj, I would see the pressure that they were putting on Suraj to join the business. Yeah. So I would always, I remember I would call him when I was on the way to work and I would tell him always with love that, listen, I know they're putting pressure on you. If you ever want to come into the business and before I could finish with that, he's like, nope. I'm like, okay. But I always wanted Suraj to know and to feel that it didn't matter what he did in the world, that the business was always here for him. Because it's also, you know, when you're, when all of us are kids, right? When your parents force you to do something, you want to say no, just for the hell of it. You just yeah. want to be like, nope. I don't want ever want to do it. So Stuart and I would always have sort of our behind the scenes conversations where it's like, okay, if you ever want to come back, he's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, okay, now you can go back to saying no. <laughs> so inside, inside, there's a little nugget of him that knew that it was a maybe, correct? 
Maybe, sir. Mostly because I wanted to work with you. (laughs) 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 If we're going to be completely honest, that was the exciting part. (laughs) I felt the same way. What does what so so when you say you want the company to be uh Ritu, you mentioned you want the company to be generational, but was that you after you talked to your other four siblings? I'm just trying to get uh, and you taught, I know you mentioned that to the family or your your mom and dad. It's like, oh, this is how I will get involved if it's <laughs> generational. So one, was that sort of like a group consensus thing? Um, or is that Ritu's will just just sort of driving the whole situation, um, one. Um, and then two, I mean, what does a, I mean, to you, what does generational look like? I mean, what is a generational company? I mean, that's just sort of a vague term for most people. <laughs> so busted. Um, it was Ritu's will. I like the way that you put it to, <laughs> to diversify. Um, I have been trying to will this into existence since 2012. Um, and it happened slowly, slowly. So we, you know, we exited, we didn't exit hotels, sorry. Well, we had our hotels, we entered into residential real estate, um, but I kept wanting to look at other businesses. So Rogue was a perfect way. We started looking at startups and we started looking at entry-level businesses, which was great. Um, but I still want to do this because again, I felt that this company should be generational and I can understand with my parents, it's harder for them to understand. So we'll go on the way of Ritu's will as opposed to Ritu's fourth. Um, it was definitely the, the will of understanding. And to my parents' credit, once Sue and I kind of sat down with them and explained how important it is, they were completely, completely all in, which was, which was amazing. And I'm completely missing your other question. I, 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 I can make a, a quick point on this one as well, Gina. So yeah, I, going over to Rita's point, there, as she mentioned, there was a different level of understanding amongst the second generation and first in terms of what the company needs going forward, right? My parents came to this country with nothing. They built something that was, you know, unbelievably large and has done unbelievably well, but Again, you know, they they you know they learned from like they learned from the streets, right? Like they learned building this company up. Reese and I are very privileged to have, you know, we both have MBAs. We were able to to understand case studies and see what other family businesses have done and all that kind of thing. So 100 percent when Ritu first came to them and said, Hey, listen, like, you know, we need to diversify, we need to do more, all this kind of thing. They didn't understand it, right? At first, because for them, they're like, Well, we have we're an industry that we're unbelievable at, we're number one in the country, it's going incredibly well. I don't understand why I would be looking at doing something else, something else just yet. Um, but Ritu worked on them for, for years and, and explained to them why when we wanted, you know, our objective is not just to be, like she mentioned, a, a very big mom and pop shop. Our objective is to be huge. Our objective is to be, you know, a, a massive player in the country, in the world. This is what it'll take. So I, I wouldn't say it was the will of Ritu or anything that was enforced. I think that she really convinced my parents why this was the right move. But she showed them why this is what would be best for everyone. And when you mentioned earlier about, you know, the other siblings, things like that, uh, you know, it's funny. We went to this conference in Miami that was like a family business conference. And I really think this was really necessary because every family business deals with the same super awkward conversations around everything you just asked. And I think everyone has a point where they need to address these things, but nobody wants to be the one that brings it up. And when we went to this conference, there was all these things that like Ritu had tried to talk to my parents about. I tried to talk to my parents about, you know, all these weird conversations that no one liked having. And being at the conference where everyone was talking about it so openly, we ended up just having very open conversations around what everybody wanted. And honestly, what we realized is that we are more or less aligned in a lot of different things. I feel like is laughing, remembering some of the stories there. Um, and so the funny thing is, we, we told my parents, like, listen, Ritu and Suraj, we're both very involved in the business. The other two siblings not being as involved doesn't mean they shouldn't be involved in these conversations. So you need to talk to them, right? Like, even though we're the two that are here, you should be talking to both of them and saying, like, you know, what do you want in the future? Do you want to come to the company? Do you not want to be in the company? Because 
we're not really get, you're not going to be able to kind of plan appropriately unless you sort of know where all four of us stand. So we know it's awkward, but I think this will kind of be the kickstarting of a good conversation. Um, and so from there, we definitely made made progress. Um, but Ritu has been 100% leading the charge and kind of getting everybody to see where where we need to be. Um, but she never forces her will on anybody. <laughs> I don't want to just mention that part. <laughs> and where where are those conversations? Uh, where are those conversations at with your siblings? Um, because it's really interesting. Like I can tell that you guys are all in 100, you know, 89% and counting. Uh, and then you have one sibling that's um, half, sort of half in uh, for, 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 for his or her reasons. And then you have one, one that chose not to be in at least temporarily. Right. So how do you sort of um, keep everybody in the conversation when people are just simply leading different lives? Um, I mean, obviously your sibling that's in Chicago is leading a much different life outside of the family business. This occupies you guys 12 hours a day. You know, you're, I think it's your youngest sibling you mentioned that's in Chicago. Um, I'm curious about how you actually keep those conversations alive so that no one actually feels left out. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, um, Rita, I, I can start and then you can, you can uh, interject after. Because I think that one of the things that I think really helps is that the four of us, so I'm, I'm actually the youngest and I have three older sisters, uh, Shelly, who's in Chicago, Ritu, and then Rima, who's the oldest. And one thing that's good is the four of us all have a very, a very close and dynamic relationship where we can kind of just tell them, like, after when we came back from Miami, <laughs> I don't know if mom and dad listened to this, well, you guys are going to get a secret revealed here. As soon as we came back to Miami, Rita and I called Rima and called Shelly and said, hey, just so you know, mom and dad are going to be calling you and having these conversations. So like, be ready for what could be awkward and just be completely honest. So the good thing is all four of us sort of have that relationship where kind of like Rita mentioned earlier, where when I was not working in the company, she was always calling me to be like, just so you know, if you ever wanted to work in the company, just you say the word and we'll figure it out. And honestly, Ritu has done a really great job with our other two siblings of always keeping the door open as well. Our sibling who's in Chicago, she's working on her own stuff right now. She's not interested to be in the family company, but Ritu always reminds her like at least a few times a year, like just so you know, if you ever decide I want to come back and I want to figure something out and I want to do something on my own, that will always be an option. Uh, similarly, our oldest sibling who works in the business, we've always told the same thing, right? If there's more you want to do or anything like that, that's you know one of the benefits of being a family member, not just an employee. You you have that flexibility, you know. Um, so that's kind of the communication. I feel like Ritu's done a very good job of amongst the four siblings. Um, and then from the parents, there's always the different levels of communication in terms of you know where where they're hoping everyone's going to be. Um, yeah, uh, we can get into that another time. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you mentioned, um, Siraj, you mentioned that it was always business talk. And I mean, Ritu, you mentioned that you'd be getting dropped off on a school, whatever, and your dad was still talking about deals. And, um, you know, it was basically deals and business stuff that was being talked about. Now, looking back, so, I mean, you know, as a child, I grew up on a dairy farm and my dad was always talking about hay prices and the price of milk and how much the cows were producing and so forth. So that was my world. That's all I thought existed was dairy farming, you know, but then, you know, you get out into the world and, and you're, you're at a generation ahead, you get different exposure. I was the first one to go to college. My parents didn't. Uh, I left home, haven't been back home since I was, you know, 20 years old. And, you know, you just get exposed to different things. I'm curious if you look back and, and now say, gosh, you know, when, when and if I do have a family or not even if, when and if I do have a family just right now, do you sort of see sort of an opportunity cost to parents just sort of overwhelming kids with whatever they're occupied with? And I'm just sort of like, what do you feel that may have been missed as a result that you 
have a little bit of an eye going in that direction now as a young adult or sort of a middle-aged adult, you're like, you know, that probably is important to include in my life so I can live a more integrative life. Uh, great question. And I think everybody, you know, they'll, they'll look at the parents and be like, when I have kids, <laughs> I'm never doing that. I think for us, when it came to the, the work aspect of it, we, we absolutely loved it. Um, one of the things that was really funny is that our house, um, a lot of the times and many times of the year would be a design studio. So we, you know, we would be embarrassed because our friends would come over and our family room was doorknobs and carpet symbols <laughs> and tiles. And my friends loved it. And yeah, my dad loved it. So my dad, you know, they, they were little 10 year old girls, but it didn't matter. My dad said, what do you like? Which, which knobs do you like and why? And why do you like that tile? So I thought it was like so stupid because I wanted to play, but my my friends loved it. And they, they loved to be part of that process. So I, I think when I look back, um, I think what it showed me was that how much I actually loved business because I think, you know, if I, if I grew up in, in the same environment and I hated it and I hated that he would always talk about business and that's all we would talk about, I, I think I, I wouldn't be where I am right now because then if I hated business, I would obviously be on a different path. Um, obviously, there's, there's things, I think every family has things that you would say, you know, I wish my parents didn't do that. Um, I mean, boys weren't allowed to call our house. I was not allowed to, I couldn't even say a guy's name without getting yelled at. Um, I say I'm going to change it, but I kind of want to see what would happen if I was that strict on my, on my kids. So it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I don't think I can say to you firmly that, you know what, my parents did this and I, I didn't like that they did it. I want to change it because when we all talk and we look back, we realize that everything had, everything had a reason. So small kind of weird story. Um, when I was really young, my, my dad would give me the newspaper, usually the first section of the newspaper, um, and tell me to write it all out. So, and I, you know, I don't know, maybe it was a stupid kid. So I never questioned him. Like, I don't know if it's like a South Asian thing. They tell you to do something, you do it. You never question your parents. I know the generation now, these kids ask so many questions, but we were not allowed to ask questions. So he says, write out the entire A section of the newspaper, you do it. So, I would do it, you know, every weekend he would sit down and then he would, I think what he was doing was trying to get me to practice my writing, um, which is funny. I didn't exactly appreciate it at the time, but now not only can I read incredibly quickly because I had to figure out a way to get through the A section really fast, but my writing became very neat. Um, and it just, it just felt funny because these things as a kid, we hated it. But then as I got older, I realized now because he made me do this every weekend, I can read really fast. And my, my handwriting is, is actually pretty neat in comparison to my colleagues. So um, I do think that my parents led with, with a reason that we didn't see as a kid, but as an adult, you learn to appreciate. And so I would love to hear your, your, your take on this. No, honestly, I, I completely agree with everything you said. And the funny thing is, you know, you mentioned how, Kids now, they're they'll be they'll be very curious. They'll they'll ask questions, things like that. Uh, I think I definitely would push that envelope a little bit <laughs> with my parents. So if they would say like do this or like solve this, whatever, I would always ask. I would always ask a lot of questions. And I think for me, you know, similarly, growing up, I definitely realized how passionate I was about business as. I guess you'd call it an industry, right? Uh, because I think I realized when I went to, so uh, originally I, I figured, you know, like my sister mentioned doctor or lawyer. For me, I'm like, well, not really interested in medicine. Maybe I'll look into being a lawyer. Um, but as I started looking into business, and again, it was Dr. Ritu who inspired me about it in high school. She told me about this organization that was a business case competition. The more I learned about it, the more I realized how much I, it was kind of innately inside me. And the more I realized how much I loved it. Um, and honestly, for me, you know, 
like even now I still if we're looking at tiles and carpet samples and doorknobs I'm still like oh dear lord like not again <laughs> I feel the same way I felt when I was three but I realized how much that my dad and my mom being entrepreneurs and solving you know at the end of the day it's problem solving right it's it's creative problem solving and, and finding a need for the market and making a difference in the market that's what I realized that was in me since I was really really young and as soon as I got exposure to it I realized how much I loved it and how passionate I was about it and since then it's been there's never been a question right like ever since I was 15 or 16 years old at that point. It was like, I will always be doing something in business and not just working. It'll be something entrepreneurial. When and how did the impact overlay start to uh, come into your business, start to emerge? And um, was there a sort of a moment that your family started this, your parents, or was this clearly your generation and you four siblings that were really committed to the idea of an impact overlay. Sure. So my family, our parents did start our uh, charitable organization in the 70s when they came to the country. Um, and a lot of the work that they did was in India. Um, and the one thing our parents always taught us when we were growing up, you know, is that we, it, how important it is to give back. And I think for me, I really felt, I really felt that importance of, I felt almost that if we're if we're blessed and you know we're 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 blessed to have food on the table and we're blessed to have companies where we're employing other people, then I also want to make sure that we're helping others. So um way, you know, many, many years before we had launched the or I should say relaunched our family organization, I was always doing philanthropy work within within the company. So um one of the things that I would do every year, and we we did this for, for more than a decade, um, there's a company here in Toronto called Holiday Helpers. And what they do every holiday season is they ask for donations of toys and and a whole bunch of things that are going to the to kids and families in Toronto, so in the GTA that are just below the poverty line. And it was so nice, you know, because I started this and, you know, a lot of the hotels were a little bit questioning, you know, what are we doing here and why are we doing this? But it became, it became tradition. And then what would happen is every year leading up to it, hotels, we would do a little competition. So every hotel would basically create almost like a movie set and it became huge. Someone did once um, a set of The Grinch and it was just basically to garden donations. Everything was for charity. Um, and what I loved and when, when I really felt that the company started to understand how important impact and giving back was, was it was summer and the hotels are reaching out to me saying, hey, Reed, by the way, we're just going to start our fundraising now for holiday helpers because they wanted to be ahead of the line. And I thought, you know what? Um, I, sorry, I have like a religious thing in my head. I just felt like, okay, I'm now at a point where everybody understands how important it is to give back. So for me, I actually was looking at my notes from, from many years ago and I had a list of things to do <laughs> for the company. And it just like a random handwritten list. And one of them was, what in big letters I had written philanthropy and like underlined it a million times because I knew that I wanted to make sure that not only is it important to me and important to our family, important to Seward, but I want to make sure that everyone that is a part of Easton's team also feels how important it is because if they're forced to do it, for me, that is just, that's besides the point. I want, I, I wanted everyone's heart to be in it. Um, and then when COVID came, all of our hotels, obviously, as you know, they started winding down. The occupancy was dropping like a rock um, and everybody was scared and I could feel that. And I was so worried because I wanted to make sure that our teams knew, number one, that Easton's was here in the long run, that we weren't going to pull their doors, that we weren't going to give up. And number two, that it was so important right now to give back. And Stuart and I, you know, we, we met with a lot of different charitable companies over the past year and everybody said, nobody's giving everybody has cut their budgets and it just it just broke my heart thinking that we're in a state of crisis and everyone has kind of said 
they basically decided to take care of themselves. So Seward and I launched a project called Project Kindness, which was last year now in April. Um, and I reached out to the hotels and said, okay, we're gonna launch this project. Right now, the hotels are winding down. Don't throw out your food, let's let's donate it. And let's donate it to the shelters that need it the most. And you know, within 24 hours, we raised 1,870 pounds of food. Um, and I was just so, I was so touched. All of our hotels, Seward and I were making deliveries. Seward was driving trucks, going to different hotels and picking up food. And it was, it was really amazing. And that just snowballed. And then hotels would reach out to us and say, okay, we want to donate toiletries to this shelter. or We want to do donate these plates. We're not going to use it, you know, for the next probably eight months. Can we just donate it? So it was really amazing. And I, and I think for me, it, for me, it was just such a moment of pride knowing that all the teams knew how important philanthropy was and not only knew that it was important to us as a family, but they felt it too. And they all wanted to give back and they all wanted to be a part, a part of that, of that movement. Sorry, I can talk about this forever. I feel like I should. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add? <laughs> no, honestly, you, you summarize everything really nicely. And I think that as you mentioned, giving back was always something that was part of our culture, something our parents always talked about. Um, but one thing I can say is that Ritu has always made sure that giving back and philanthropy and charity is, is ingrained in everything we do. And anytime Rita and I discuss a new business idea or my parents discuss a new project they want to invest in or what have you, Ritu will always bring it back to how can we also make the world better through this investment, right? So for example, uh, and examples I can give you the last year. We'll look at investing in a hotel or something in, in a, uh, an impoverished country and Ritu will, will tell us like, okay, how can we make sure we can increase education in that place or make sure that the, the population there has the resources they need if we're going to be going in to starting a business? Um, like you mentioned during COVID, when, when everyone was, you know, tight, kind of tightening the purse strings, trying to figure out how to get through, kind of get through the pandemic, it, you know, on one hand, it logically made sense. On the other hand, exactly what you said, she looked at it like this is the time when the world needs the most help. Why are, why are people pulling back now? But what was really interesting is so many organizations we saw after she announced Project Kindness, we saw all these emails of other organizations starting to do the same things. And I think it's one of those really amazing and beautiful mentalities she always has where with any new industry or any new idea, she'll always push our family and push all of our companies to look at, well, how can we make a difference kind of concurrently with the idea? And I think it's really made our whole family, you know, be very blessed to have been able to do a lot more for the community. So, so you guys are currently framing your version of impact and the overlay in terms of uh, philanthropy. I guess what I'm interested in is, is that what's, a, and then uh, you mentioned the crisis in terms of COVID and responding to that. Um, I'm interested in more of sort of the integrative impact that's actually built into the design of the um, hotels that, or perhaps maybe they're per, perhaps the hotels are more of a legacy type of uh, investment and more one-dimensional. And now this new uh, endeavor uh, rogue um, allows you to say, hey, look, from ground zero on, we're doing a full integration. And so, and that that happens with a lot of families where a lot of legacy business is frankly sort of one dimensional, is pretty extractive. If like you're really doing intellectual honesty with it, uh, it's pulling more than it's, it's giving. Um, and there's not a lot of like impact designed into it. We see a lot of legacy businesses responding to crisis per se, and given that context, but I'm really interested in, I mean, you guys are very thoughtful folks. I'm guessing at certain points of the businesses now that you're involved in, especially when you can start from ground zero and invest from ground zero, are you coming in and saying, hey, I want the full integrative basket going forward. I don't want any of this legacy stuff. I, we have that and we're working on it. Uh, but now with this fresh, fresh batch of energy and capital, we're going this way. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I can talk a little bit about Rogue and Ritu, maybe if you'd like to talk about some of the new initiatives that you'll be you'll be launching. Um, so on the Rogue side of, of things, Gino, exactly as you mentioned, uh, with our family company, it was very much as you mentioned, the family company is doing very, very well. And whatever ways we could do charity or do philanthropy concurrently with the business, it was being done, right? And Ritu really was leading the charge on that front. With Rogue, like you mentioned, we were trying to integrate it into what we were doing in several ways. So firstly, as I mentioned, we're only investing in companies that are early stage. Uh, if they have diversity, so a female, a visible minority, or an immigrant in a leadership position, companies that are making a social impact and companies where we can have strategic value. And there were several sort of rationales for this, right? Uh, as we mentioned earlier as well, uh, we can invest our capital in many different ways, but we wanted it to be integrative, to use your word. We wanted it to be in a way where we could make a difference, not just with you know, generating profit. That was one. Uh, secondly, every year, everyone talks about how, oh, social impact companies don't raise enough money, right? You know, diverse companies don't raise enough money. Everyone keeps saying it and the numbers never change. So it was very obvious that people are just paying lip service and they're not doing anything differently. But one thing Ritu and I knew, we're like, okay, if we were to take out the social obligations, the ethical obligations, all of the obvious reasons we should be supporting whatever works out to like 92% of our population, take all that out of the equation, these companies do better, right? You can't become a global company if you're all from a homogenous group. Like you're not gonna be able to sell, you're not gonna be able to understand new markets if you don't have people on your team that are from those places. Um, and so with the way we looked at it was like, okay, clearly everyone's talking about the social ethical obligations of investing in women, investing in minorities. And unfortunately it's not enough to move the needle. So if we can demonstrate that we have an unbelievable track record, we've invested in these groups and hey, look, our IRR and our rate of return is so much better than everyone else's, then hopefully that'll make investors pile on because you know, it's a blind spot in the market. So that was kind of the focus on the diversity side. And social impact was similar. Um, a quick tangent on this on this front was that in the early 2000s, there was a big boom into clean tech. And a lot of people invested a lot of money in, into new clean technologies because they thought it was the future. They were correct with the thesis. They were incorrect with the timing. A lot of them lost a lot of money. And the unfortunate consequence of that was that after that point, the market became very skittish to invest in socially impact driven companies. That's kind of the way I looked at it. It always felt like people at that point saw clean tech companies and socially impactful companies as an automatic trade-off towards from profit, right? It was always like invest in a company that's going to be hyper growth or invest in a social impact company. But that's shifted over the last decade, right? Like we've seen more and more companies that are making social impact are the ones that have the potential to grow the most, right? They can hire the best talent. The cons consumers want to use them the most because they're making a difference. And when you have a solution that's not just help, that's not just making money, but also helping people, it's going to be kind of a, a virtuous cycle and going to keep growing. Um, I mean, we've invested in a Montreal-based company called Pyrowave. They've created, as far as we know, the only technology in the world that can break down styrofoam back to its root chemical. So you can actually recycle styrofoam as opposed to the one-way ticket to the landfill. Um, we've invested in a company called Borrowell and they have, they're effectively empowering Canadians to improve their credit score and in, in, increase their financial literacy. Um, both these companies, unbelievable social impact, also doing fundamentally incredibly well, like raising unbelievable amounts of money, huge amounts of traction now, you know, a little bit more difficult in the early going to sort of tell that story. But now that they have, it's one of those things that's snowballing and it's gonna like, like Rita mentioned, it's gonna kind of continue going out of control. So that's kind of been the integrative focus on the rogue side of things. Ritu, do you want to talk about some of the new initiatives that we were you're going to be working on? Sure. So, Gina, you had mentioned, you know, um, the legacy initiatives versus making an impact. And I think it's it's interesting because I was thinking about this as, as soon as talking as well, that when we, so when we started the company, um, and still now, unfortunately, real estate development is very, very male-dominated. And 20 years ago, when I was working in hotels, it was still male-dominated. And I remember being being really young and being doing job interviews. And the higher-ups at that time, so they were, you know, much older, much whiter, definitely not ethnic. They would make comments about women saying, okay, well, we could hire her, but she's probably, she just got married. 
she probably didn't go on mat leave. We don't want that. That and this was just oh my god. He, hearing this day after day, I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I'm I'm super young. You know, I'm usually the only woman at the table. So it was it was really hard at that point to kind of to I had a decision to make. Right? Do I do I just shut up and just let it go because you know everybody is a lot older than me, or do I say something? And I always chose to say something, and I always chose to sort of move that needle because I could see what was happening, and I could see that the doors, especially in the hotel industry, were being closed on women just for the sake of their women and for all of the assumptions that go along with that. Um, or if it was women that was already married with kids, then that's another issue to these to certain people. Oh, well, she's gonna leave at three to go pick up her kids every day. It was it was so infuriating hearing this. So I kind of took matters in my own hands and I made sure that every time we were doing hires, I was a part of it. So it didn't matter what my role was in the company, whether we were hiring you know, it didn't matter if we were hiring kind of frontline people or executive people. I wanted to make sure that it was fair and that we were looking at the person, male or female, we were looking at them in the correct way. And for me, this was sort of my way of, I'll say, making an impact because I wanted to make sure if we're, if we're going to be leading this company, I want, I want us to be the best there is. And the best to me doesn't mean revenue. The best to me means that our people are happy and our people can say that they're proud to be here. Um, but there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of issues that we had to come out of being sort of a ma and pa shop to where we are today. Um, and now our executive team is maybe 60% female um, across all of our hotels. We have about 70% that are, or maybe I have the number wrong, Seward could probably correct me. We have much more the majority of women in management roles at our hotels. And that's solely because I pushed this so far with all of our hotels, making sure that they understand that this is not about men versus female. This is about hiring the best person for the job. And for me, I had to start, like for me, I felt like it was starting small in terms of I wanted that that impact first to start within the company. Once I felt like, okay, the company's good, we're in a good place, we have a lot of women here, There's, we're very diverse. Then I started looking at other things and working with groups like the Women Executive Network and making sure that I can do other things to help um, empower women. I love that story. I, I just love the story about, um, because it's a very qualitative moment for you. It's a very existential moment. You're, you know, you mentioned you're young, but yet you access, right? And um, we hear that story in Nexus a lot. Um, it's because just the benefit, the benefit of having access alone and then have access plus courage to act on it, you can make a lot of things happen. Um, and your willingness to actually be at the table for whoever was being interviewed, just to make sure it was fair. Um, says a lot and also very inspiring for other people that are hearing this probably saying hey look um we don't like if i have access to this opportunity maybe i should be involved and in, and you know and actually be doing what ritu's doing with whatever context i'm in to make sure that i mean things are uh being dealt with um uh, fairly i'm curious early on and it's going to sound a little bit like a non sequitur but i was very intrigued by it when we uh, discussed and talked initially about your notebook habit. Um, uh, Ritu, you, you mentioned you have 15 plus notebooks and you're sort of a, a writing fiend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, it leads me into, um, are the notebooks merely, are, are ideas, um, you're just jotting down ideas or are they sort of like pain points as well? Like, shit, I'm just like, I cannot figure this out. And 
maybe even a, you know, is it where you express maybe, um, you know, a little bit of vulnerability? Um, can, are you able to take us through what the notebooks are or is it just a simply a to 15 books of to-do list? Um, we definitely don't have enough time for the number of notebooks that I have and for the number of thoughts that I put out there. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. So in terms of the angry notebook that you didn't say angry notebook. So the angry notebooks. I yes, like that. There is an angry notebook. It's hidden in my office. Um, it's, it's silver and it's all my notebooks are very pretty, um, but it is an angry notebook. So in this notebook, this is actually where you'll find a lot of stories of the inequality that I would see. Um, oh my God, we had a guy working for us and he was tall like Seward. So he was, he was, Seward to six threes, maybe he was six two. Um, some people use their height as a, as an aggressive kind of tactic. Um, so he was very much like that and especially towards women. Um, and I constantly would go to the higher ups in the company, even though I technically was one, but I never acted and ran around like, I'm the owner, you have to listen to me. It was never that way, right? So in my notebook, because I was so frustrated seeing everything, I'm just like, okay, I'm writing all this shit down, sorry. I, and I dated it. So one day I would come back and be like, by the way, remember everything I told you? And lo and behold, what happened? Person is no longer with the company and I was able to go back to my notebook and read out all of those um, things that had happened. So there's the angry notebook and that's hidden away. Um, I also have a notebook of um, journaling, as you said, you know, uh, I do a lot of meditation, so I'll get a lot of visions or beautiful things that happen. I have a notebook for that. Um, I definitely have a notebook that I feel is my magical notebook that's also hidden away in my house. Um, and whenever I feel called to, um, I will pull out this notebook and write down a bunch of dreams, goals, aspirations, and somehow touch wood, aggregate. Whenever I write everything down, sometimes I'll go back a few years later and I'll see that I achieved those things. So for me, I feel like it's not me that the notebook is magical because I'll write it down and then it somehow comes to fruition. So I definitely write everything, everything. I'm still very old school. It has to be handwritten. Otherwise I don't remember. That's yeah, I no, I, I, I hear you. I have mine right here. Um, and this is, I write down everything and I have stacks of these. Yeah. <laughs> is that also your angry notebook? Uh, yeah. So I'm not like you too. Well, first of all, mine, Mine isn't beautiful. None of them are. Uh, and I blend every emotion into mine. So this is both a combination of to-do list, beautiful. ideas, reflection, yeah. uh, pictures, <laughs> drawings. I do drawings. I mean, especially if I'm on a real boring Zoom call, uh, I, I find myself, I like to move my hands while I like to draw mm -hmm. while listening. I've, I've, it's just part of how I process things. Uh, Siraj, I mean, how do you sort of process things on, on your end? I mean, how do you sort of make sense and sort of um, in a moment of stillness and um, or a lack of stillness uh, trying to make things? And it doesn't have to be a notebook. You can be a mixed martial artist. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, you can be out boxing. I don't know, but I'm sort of curious about what 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 your method is for making things happen. Yeah, it's such a good question. So, you know, Risi was always encouraged me to journal, but I never got into the habit of physically writing things down. Um, for me, my, I guess, idea notebook and things like that, are, are it's all written in my phone. Um, so, I mean, the nice thing is I, I'm, I'm very much an Excel dork and a geek. So I like that everything is like indexable and searchable and <laughs> all the kind of thing that you can't do with paper. Um, I would say, so kind of to answer your question, in terms of how do I process and things like that? Uh, one thing for me is that when, when there's a lot going on, I usually find that I'm... You, 
for the most part, able to sort of maintain a clear head and be able to think through complex problems as, as, as they're happening. Um, I actually, you have your notebook that you draw in. For me, it's post-its. That's usually how I'll like very quickly take notes that are all scattered on my desk. You can't see them, uh, thank God. But um, yeah, that would be the, the first way in terms of when I'm in work situations, I usually find I'm able to maintain it as clear of a head as possible and think through everything as sequentially as possible to sort of get from A to Z and get to a conclusion. Um, in terms of generally just unwinding, decompressing, what have you, uh, pre-COVID, I absolutely love playing sports. So Rachel and I are both big Raptors fans. We go to Raptors games together all the time. I love playing basketball. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't really been possible through COVID uh, with social distancing and things like that. But one thing I actually discovered during the pandemic that has become a huge source of Zen for me uh, is actually playing the piano. So during the early stage of the pandemic, um, there was a, con a concert, I think it was for Global Citizen, and they're raising money for the UN uh, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, I think I was watching Chris Martin, who's one of my favorite artists, and he's just sitting at home and he's playing this unbelievably beautiful music. And I'm watching him and I'm just like, I need to figure out how to do this. My parents had a keyboard at their house. So I drove to their house, I take the keyboard, stick it in my car and I leave. Um, and since then, I've just found that, you know, after a stressful day, uh, it's a very nice way to, to unwind. Um, and actually, Ritu has also gotten me into meditation and spirituality and all that kind of thing. And that's actually what it feels like for me. I've always found that if I play piano before bed, it, it gives me a very similar feeling to if I meditate before bed, where my head is clear and I will sleep like a baby. <laughs> Versus if I'm working, if I'm on emails, I'm watching TV before bed, I will definitely be very restless. So I, I try, I've been trying to do that more and more in the last couple of years. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's sweet. Well, I actually play the harmonium. Well, I mean, you, you probably know what a harmonium is, right? Yeah, yeah. I see. I mean, being from India, I actually play the harmonium and oh. I use that for, yeah, for chanting and, and for meditation. And for that's to, amazing. And to sing. You guys should have a jam session. We totally yeah. should. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and then, I mean, you guys are Raptor fans. Well, and I, and I grew up a Golden State Warrior fan. I grew up in the Bay Area. And so you and I had a great matchup what, what like two or three yeah. years ago, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. And actually, uh, you know, funny enough, as a small side story, the Warriors were actually, I live in a hotel condo in Toronto, and the Warriors' entire organization was actually staying in the hotel. Uh, yeah. So the funny thing is they had the hotel pretty much cordoned off for the public, um, but they were just kind of roaming around here. So we saw all the players playing. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. But Ritu always said it was like we were behind the scenes of the NBA Finals because we were seeing the coaches, we were seeing the players that they're claiming they're healthy, we were seeing them limping around in the lobby. So it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. That was amazing. I love Steph Curry. Do you know I love Steph Curry? So yeah. when I saw him get off the bus, I just started screaming. I see him just <laughs> looking at me like, and I'm in all raps gear, like head to toe. So we're just like, you're an embarrassment. Like, you, you, need, you need to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I will always remember and uh, always remember that uh, it was that seven bounce shot that Kawhi hit in the corner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I Nick mean, I'm sure Toronto Nick was, wrote a book about that. And yeah. he actually said he thinks that it was a spirit of his mother that tipped it in. Because they all just watched it. Like, I don't understand what is happening right now. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Valdo Black. Mm. Well, Ritu and Siraj, very special brother, sister duo. Um, where can people learn more about you? Um, so sure. So for for uh, for me for for Rogue, uh, our website is rogueinsightscapital.com. Uh, so if anyone wants to read more about the companies we invest in, if you guys are interested in getting in touch to learn more about what we're doing, definitely reach out. 
Um, also, you can find us on, you know, typical social media platforms, Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and lastly, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a political blogger. I'm really interested in, in looking at uh, doing political analysis, things like that. And I have a website called politicsunderstood.com uh, where I focus on mostly North American, but also uh, some European and world politics as well. So if you're interested in VC, startup investing or politics, definitely uh, look me up. For sure. So I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Um, you can also find company information on the guptagroup.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram. The name is kind of long. long. It's at six from the six. So S I S underscore from underscore the underscore six. Uh, I'll be teaching meditation on Saturday, October 2nd at 11 a.m. EST. Um, so, do you know, I can send over that information as well. I, I teach meditation. I teach for free. Um, there's no cost in our classes. So just come. It's a half an hour of beautiful Zen time. Uh, so, yeah, so that's where you can where you can find me. Ritu Siraj, thank you so much. Thank hey, you so much, Jada. This is a pleasure. So nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.